Hi, welcome back to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. All right, the last few podcasts have really been a lead up to the Civil War, and today we are going to delve into the details of the Civil War itself. There's lots of content, so we broke this up into two different parts. This here is part one, and then we will deliver part two in another week. Today's podcast was brought to you in part by the team at Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. They spell it that way on purpose. They're punny like that. If you know any business owners looking to compete online with advertising or need a new website, contact our friends at keeninsights.com and be sure to mention U.S. History Repeated. Now, as always, we have our resident history expert, Jeannie Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. The Civil War was the bloodiest war in American history. It lasted from 1861 until 1865, a war that originally was thought would only last a few months. A conflict that had been simmering for decades finally erupted with the attack on Fort Sumter, South Carolina, in April of 1861. Confederate soldiers attacked the fort and quickly won it. The war not only divided the country between North and South, but family members who fought on opposing sides. Families with one brother fighting for the Union and another fighting for the Confederacy. After the Confederates took over Fort Sumter, Lincoln requested that the remaining states in the Union send militiamen to serve in the Army. Each state received a quota. At the outset of the war, the North held a number of advantages over the Confederacy, which we'll get into over the course of the podcast. The next major item to check off of his list was who would lead these new recruits. His first choice was General Robert E. Lee of Virginia. Robert E. Lee was offered command of the Union Army by President Abraham Lincoln. He was considered to be the greatest military general of the time. Robert E. Lee was from Virginia, which had already voted to secede. It's important to understand that prior to the Civil War, people had more of an allegiance to their state than they had to the country as a whole. You would ask someone where they were from, and they would answer with, I am from Virginia, Kentucky, New York, Massachusetts, South Carolina. No one would give you the answer, I am from the United States. It's also important to note that if you look at primary source documents before the Civil War, you will see the phrase, the United States are. But if you look at primary source documents after the Civil War, you see the phrase, the United States is. That one change from are to is is incredibly important. And you can see the impact that this war had on how people viewed the country then. So when Robert E. Lee was asked to choose between Virginia and the United States, he chose Virginia. He was quoted as saying, and this is a direct quote, I can't draw my sword against my beloved Virginia. He resigned from the U.S. military and he would go on to lead Virginia's militia for the Confederacy. The military plan for the Union was devised by General Winifred Scott, a veteran of the War of 1812 and the Mexican-American War. The Anaconda was a three-part strategy. 
you would have a blockade of Confederate ports, use the Mississippi River to divide the Confederacy into two parts, and to capture the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. The war was, of course, much more complex than that, and far longer and bloodier than most had anticipated. When we refer to the North or the Union, we are referring to the states that remained in the Union. There were also five Southern slaveholding states that did not secede. We refer to those as the border states, which we will talk more about in a little bit. At the outset, the Union had a far greater number of advantages than the South did. You should notice that many of those advantages that the Northern states had, many of them were sectional issues, things like banks, industrialization, railroad lines. The North also had a greater population, and as a result, more men to fight and more people to aid in the war effort. The North was industrialized and had factories that were needed to build war materials. The North had around 70% of the country's railroad lines, and so this aided in the transportation of not only soldiers, but also supplies. The North had farms where food was grown as opposed to the South, whose climate was more suitable for cash crops. The Union had a number of different generals at the helm over the course of the war. George McClellan took over the Union Army at the young age of 34. Newspapers at the time referred to him as Napoleon. He helped to organize the mass of volunteers. The camps were organized and men were trained and drilled. But he would be removed from his post by Lincoln and then put back only to be removed again. Typical military rations that a Civil War soldier would have had They were very meager rations, um, especially in the South, which quickly ran out of supplies. Staples such as salted beef or pork and hardtack. Hardtack was this hard biscuit of sorts, which was made out of flour and salt. And that, you know, made up the majority of the soldier's diet. Before we get into, you know, battles of the Civil War, I think it's important that we discuss the Confederacy. So Jefferson Davis was the first and only president of the Confederate States of America. Like Lincoln, he was born in Kentucky. His family later moved to Mississippi. Unlike Lincoln, he was well-educated. He attended, you know, colleges. He graduated from West Point, whereas Lincoln was more self-educated. His family owned slaves, and he lived on a plantation in Mississippi, Like Lincoln, he fought in the Black Hawk War, but he saw military combat. He was also a veteran of the Mexican-American War. He served under then-General Zachary Taylor, who, of course, would eventually become President of the United States, and he married the daughter of then-General Zachary Taylor in 1835, but she died a few months later. He remained a widower for quite some time. And he did eventually remarry. He married his second wife, Verena Davis, in 1845. She was from a Mississippi planter family. And Jefferson Davis represented the state of Mississippi in the House of Representatives. He also served as Franklin Pierce's Secretary of War and then went on to serve in the Senate until his resignation the day after Mississippi seceded from the Union. 
Rice University has an extensive collection of primary source documents on their website called the Jefferson Davis Papers. It's a wonderful place to go to if you are interested in learning more. In his resignation speech, he stated, and this is a direct quote from that resignation speech, I have for many years advocated as an essential attribute of state sovereignty the right of a state to secede from the Union. Therefore, if I had not believed there was a justifiable cause, if I had thought that Mississippi was acting without sufficient provocation or without an existing necessity, I should still, under my theory of the government, because of my allegiance to the state of which I am a citizen, have been bound by her action. I, however, may be permitted to say that I do think she has justifiable cause and I approve of her act. Jefferson Davis was a strong supporter of states' rights and slavery throughout his political career. When it came to Southern representatives in the legislative branch, he was considered a leading figure. So that's why Jefferson Davis is chosen to be the president of the Confederacy. The first capital of the Confederacy was in Montgomery, Alabama. The heat, the lack of industrial capability made Richmond, Virginia a better option once that state had seceded. While many, including Jefferson Davis, felt the capital should stay in the Deep South, Richmond, Virginia, which was the second largest city in the South, became the new capital. It ended up being the industrial hub of the South. One company in particular sealed the deal, Tredegar Ironworks, which is now the site of the Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. It was the only place that was capable of producing the metalworks necessary for war, things like artillery and iron for warships. President Jefferson Davis resided in what would become known as the Confederate White House. It was a mansion initially built in the early 1800s, and it was rented out to the Confederacy by the city of Richmond. Davis, uh, you know, he both lived and worked in the mansion. Now, the Confederate flag. Most confuse the battle flag of Northern Virginia for the Confederate flag, you know, that blue background with a St. Andrews or Southern Cross with the stars. It's also sometimes referred to as the stars and the bars. That is the battle flag of Northern Virginia. The Confederate national flag was referred to as the stainless banner, a white flag with that same battle flag I just described in the top left corner. So when the Southern states seceded, they quickly put together a government the Confederate Constitution was written in four days. Now, while that might sound impressive, it was strikingly similar to the U.S. Constitution with just a few changes. It had the same three branches of government as the United States. Um, you know, some of the most notable differences in it being, of course, the recognition and protection of the institution of slavery by name. The president could serve only one six-year term and could not be reelected. And the sovereignty of each state was hammered home throughout the document. And only states could propose amendments. So you have to understand that within the Confederacy, the states were going to have a much stronger role than the federal government would in the Confederacy. 
Confederate currency. Now, the Confederate government only issued paper currency. They did not have access to metal in order to have coins. The currency depicted members of, you know, the Confederate government, notable members within Southern society, even slaves were printed on Confederate currency. The currency, as we all know now, became worthless and it led to drastic inflation within the South. The Confederacy did have a few strengths. The South had a strong military tradition, and as a result, many of the country's greatest generals sided with the South. They were fighting a war to protect their way of life. It's also important to understand that most Confederate soldiers did not own slaves, yet they still readily fought in the war. They had the home field advantage. They were very much on the defense. The most dangerous threat to the Union or to the North was the fear that Great Britain would recognize the Confederacy. The South felt that King Cotton, as it was called, would pave the way for, the, for not only recognition, but also aid in waging this war. The South cut cotton production in order to create a higher demand for it in Europe, thinking this would build pressure and it would force Britain to recognize the newly created Confederate States of America. Great Britain wisely waited for the dust to settle. You know, so while at first the Confederacy, you know, seemed to maybe have the upper hand in the war, that changed. And with the issue of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, recognition by Great Britain was no longer an option. Britain had already ended slavery. They could not recognize a country that was readily going to, you know, support it. So the Union Army had to invade the South and they had to recapture a vast amount of territory. The Confederacy was plagued by a number of weaknesses, which made fighting this war difficult. A new government. They had to create both an army and a navy. Their lack of industrialization made securing the necessary supplies difficult. It was just, it wasn't just war materials that they lacked. Basic supplies like food, salt, flour. It resulted in the people of the South having to make do with supplies that they had on hand. You know, the low supply of meat, the lack of availability of ammunition, even to be able to hunt, also gave rise to the popularity of, of the peanut, you know, of all things. You know, you have boiled peanuts remain a popular snack in the South, you know, to this day. Now, the border states, right? We mentioned them earlier. So the border states consisted of five southern slaveholding states that did not secede from the Union. The border state of Maryland, in particular, was of great strategic importance to the Union due to not only its location to the capital, Washington, D.C., if Maryland were to secede, the capital would be in the Confederacy, right? So Maryland was of great importance. The border states were Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, Maryland, and then eventually West Virginia after it was created in 1863. So Kentucky, its geographic location tied it to both the North and the South. The state attempted to remain neutral. No matter which side it chose, it would cause a major problem for that state. So, you know, residents of Kentucky fought for both sides. During the war, the state traded with the Confederacy, which the Union, you know, knew about and turned a blind eye to because they needed to keep Kentucky. 
There was a small minority faction in the government that voted for secession and established a government that was admitted to the Confederacy. The Confederate flag had 13 stars, yet only 11 states. And so one of those stars is for Kentucky. In the post-Civil War era, you will see strong support for Confederate ideals within the state of Kentucky. Missouri, like Kentucky, residents fought on both sides, although more fought for the Union than for the Confederacy. The state at first voted against secession, but after Lincoln's request for states to send troops, each, each state was you know, given a quota, secession gained more popularity. Like in Kentucky, some members of the state government claimed autonomy and requested Confederate statehood, but that never happened. Delaware also saw people fighting from both sides. While still a slave state, the number of slaves had decreased drastically within the state. Delaware was actually an important manufacturing hub for the Union during the Civil War. When the state voted against secession, the governor at the time stated, Delaware had been the first state to embrace the Union by ratifying the Constitution, and we would be the last state to leave it. In Delaware, there was a prison for Confederate soldiers. It was known as the Andersonville of the North. Andersonville was a military prison camp for soldiers in Georgia, and the conditions there were terrible and led to the death of thousands of soldiers. The Union camp in Delaware for the Confederate soldiers wasn't nearly as bad. Maryland was one of the most important border states. We discussed that earlier, right? Due to its proximity to the capital. Both Virginia and Maryland, once upon a time, gave territory to create Washington, D.C. The population of Maryland was divided over its loyalty to the Union and its fellow slaveholding states. Lincoln had to declare martial law in the state, and he also suspended the writ of habeas corpus there. Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and sent troops to prevent members of the legislature from voting to secede. Lincoln, of course, went beyond the powers granted to him in the Constitution, but he did so in order to preserve the Union. Okay, that concludes part one of the Civil War. Join us next time for part two, where we tackle the conclusion and aftermath of the U.S. Civil War. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.